0: Hello, and welcome to The Cocktail Hour with me, your host, Erin Folk. The Cocktail Hour is a place where we celebrate the women in business who are shaking shit up. This week, we are talking with Corey Carew. Am I saying your last name right? You are. Oh, I'm so excited. I meant to ask you that before we started. Welcome, Corey. Thank you. I'm Mm -hmm. happy to be here. I'm so excited. I'm going to tell everybody how much I've been stalking you, but first, I want to tell them who you are. (laughs) She's (laughs) shaking her head like, why did I agree to this? (laughs) So... You probably already know who she is, but if you are the three people in Kansas City that don't, Corey Carew is an attorney and community builder who generates awareness and understanding of critical human issues by creating the space and climate for open dialogue that is meaningful, enables people to expand their perspective, and drive positive change. With grace and truth, she's a disruptor, womanist, and social justice advocate with a multinational, multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multilingual family background. She brings a keen sensitivity to belonging and inclusion across differences and creating space for the underrepresented. Corey questions barriers that divide communities and hold back individual potential, and at the center of her perspectives and passions is her faith. Corey was born in Canada, is from Sierra Leone, and was raised in Nigeria, pushing against paradigms that attempt to dictate the direction of individual choices and isms that divide communities. Corey most recently served as the Director of Strategic Diversity Initiatives of an AMLAW, am I saying that right? AMLAW, Law. AMLAW, yeah.
1: <laughs> when you start talking law, it goes way over my head,
0: 100 law firm leading all efforts related to the firm's primary diversity and inclusion driver of excellence, education, and equity across 12 offices. And you can tell you're a lawyer because you didn't put that firm's name in here, Right. <laughs> Liaising with key stakeholders to recruit, develop, engage, and advance attorneys from diverse backgrounds, the firm won over 40 awards recognizing its leadership, its diversity, and inclusion under her leadership. She took an innovative and proactive approach to tackling diversity and inclusion by embracing talent management, inclusive leadership development, and assessing and interrupting systems. Using advocacy and organizational strategy to address structural barriers to diversity in the workplace, she brings an incisive voice. i this is really fancy, unapologetic (laughs) questioning of the status quo and a lifelong fascination of human potential to empowering women and marginalized people and improving inclusion. She is a nationally sought-after speaker on diversity, inclusion, and belonging, inclusive leadership, talent engagement, and development topics. Corey's drive toward redefining the circle of belonging and restoring authenticity fuels her work in the marketplace as well as in her community. She is wife to Gary and mother to Riley and Samara.
1: Samara.
0: Samara. I knew I was going to mess up one of them. Welcome,
1: Corey. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's tell people
0: I've been stalking you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have to hear (laughs) about this.
0: (laughs) So I have been stalking you on LinkedIn for a while because for a lot of reasons. But A, you're very authentic. You put out uh, LinkedIn content that is authentic. You are who you are. Then you were working at this huge law firm. So to me, you're probably the most authentic attorney I've ever seen, right? Because usually <laughs> with attorney, you get a little bit stiffer of a of a, of a a verbiage online. And then on top of that, you just got a really cool style and look, right? Oh, thank you. So here I am stalking her on LinkedIn. And then... Uh, I'm just to be really honest with you. We went to Christmas Eve service at our church, and we, we we go to a big church, and we're the type of people that go in. We sit down. We go to church, and we leave, and we know nobody, and I've gone there for like 60 years. Oh, wow. We know nobody. Uh, now that I have my husband, I really don't have to talk to people because he'll talk to me. Right? <laughs> so we go in, and maybe we could do a better job at this, but uh, Christmas Eve, we we're getting ready to leave the next day. My husband was like, we have to go to church. We have to go to church. I was like, oh, okay, fine, and I was like grumbling. Didn't really want to go. And we go. And who is the speaker that night? It's you. And I literally left crying and messaged her on LinkedIn. I'm like, okay, I'm stalking you. Let's <laughs> talk to my church. Come on my podcast. <laughs> it's about how it went. So I'm and super I was, like, excited. Don't that cry. You're here. <laughs> Your
1: wedding's gonna go great. Don't be stressed. It's going to be awesome. And I think that's kind of what you
0: talked about. You talked about all the stuff, all the stress that comes with the holidays. Yeah. So I am so excited you are here. Welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And we Man, just, your studios are, I'm so motivated to splash color everywhere. Oh,
0: thank you, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. If it was up to me, I would have had an all neon wall, but soundproofing wall. But everyone else said that's a little too much sometimes, Aaron. So you're wrong. And we just found out you're you're not going to be in Kansas City much too longer, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, I'm very yeah, just found this living. out. Well, I
0: mean, we just became best friends.
1: I know. <laughs> what do you do? Like, like the timing is just. But you know. Yeah. We can still be best friends. All right. And where are you moving to?
0: Chicago. Chicago. All right. I like to visit Chicago. Yep. So we'll be good. All right. So let's start off. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background? Because it sounds like between Canada, Sierra Leone, and uh, Nigeria, you have one of the more
1: interesting backgrounds of anyone that's been on here. Hmm. So the irony of being born in Canada is that I hate the cold. I hate winter. And of course, here, I'm moving to Chicago because my husband... Got a job there. I keep following this boy to places.
0: How long have you guys been
1: <laughs> Uh 18 years nice. on Sunday.
0: Oh, happy anniversary. Yeah. Will you get to see him?
1: I will. Okay, good. I will. He'll be home for the weekend, so that's awesome. Good. Um, so a little bit about me and my background. You know, my family's from Sierra Leone, and in my culture, you are from where your father's from. Okay. And so even though I didn't grow up in Nigeria, my identity— how I think of myself is a Sierra Leonean. Okay. Um, if I meet other people from my country, and they recognize my family name, even though I've never lived there, I'm accepted as one of them.
0: Because that's where your father's from.
1: Because that's where your father's okay. from. It's very patrilineal in that way. Oh, wow. But I grew up in Nigeria. And so a lot of my experiences and, and my worldviews were shaped there. Now I grew up on a university campus, so it was really, really diverse. The way universities are, at least the federal universities, when I was growing up in Nigeria, is there's a campus and on the campus there's the academic side, then there are the, the hostels, dormitories okay. where the students live, and then there's the staff quarters. Okay. So you actually are living on the campus in a different section of the campus. And most of the professors, a lot of the professors, I shouldn't say most, a lot of the professors came from all over the country, all over West Africa, all over the world. So I grew up with kids from everywhere. The campus almost was um, like a microcosm. Well, actually, microcosm isn't the right word. It was like its own little town. I was hoping you would tell me what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like it wasn't exactly reflective of the larger town in the sense that, it, you know, oh. it wasn't like a mini of the town. Yeah. It had some diversity there. Okay. So you have the culture and what's going on in the town and then you have this university campus where all the kids growing up on the campus are children of people who work there, whether they're professors or administrators okay. or janitors, and then they're from all over the country. And then we had our own clinic, for example. So unless you were seriously hurt, you didn't have to leave campus. Okay. We had our own elementary school. Oh wow! And so we had that. We had a bookstore on campus that was near my mom's office. Oh wow! I spent a lot of both time there. Both your parents there. work at the. Yeah, okay, both of them campus? worked at the university. Okay, and so. It was a very interesting upbringing because you're surrounded by, you know, you're surrounded by a university campus, you know.
0: When you say there's more diversity, do you just mean socioeconomic or do you mean by the way people looked as well?
1: Everything. Race, ethnicity, religion. Okay. You know, Nigeria has over 300 different ethnic groups with with people speaking different languages. So it's an incredibly diverse country by itself. Okay. Um, and I know sometimes people think of diversity just in terms of race, but diversity along ethnicity yeah. is huge on the continent. Um, especially in sub Saharan. How did you get part it from of the continent.
0: Canada? How what where does Canada play in this picture? How My dad was there? getting
1: one of his degrees there. Okay, so he was in school. Yeah. And I was born there.
0: Okay. And how did he meet your mom?
1: <laughs> so um my dad has a cousin. They're like brothers. So that's another thing about our culture. We don't use the words cousins. They're like brothers. They grew up really close. Isn't
0: that kind of, um, you've listened to my podcast, so you know I ask questions Sometimes that can just be really blunt. Isn't that kind of, I get that it's Nigerian culture, but hasn't that kind of come over to just African-American culture together, like all together? Because I remember being in college, so I went to Gardner. Mm-hmm. which was, at the time, the only amount of um, diversity we had at all was the Laos population. Mm. Shout out to Sander, who's in the office. He's Laos. Um, however, I just I loved black guys. I, <laughs> I did up until I got married to my husband, right? Yeah. Um, but I remember when I first started dating a black guy, he would say, my cousin, my cousin, my cousin. Mm-hmm. And they were never his actual cousin, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So in my mind, I had my 13 cousins on my dad's side <laughs> and my 15 on my mom's side. And I remember when I finally really found out, like, I was like, God, how many cousins do you have? And then yeah. it was, like, friends that were really close or, like, people that were really, really close. Yeah.
1: So we have that as well. Okay. Yeah. But that,
0: but did that, tra- did that translate, do you think, over the years?
1: I don't know if it did. I would say that I can see that happening in the African-American culture, given how um, blacks were brought to the United States Mm -hmm. and how they had to create community Mm -hmm. to sustain one another. Um, And I think the culture is a bit more collectivist as opposed to individualist. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so there's that similarity. Um, But like even in our ethnic languages, in many of our ethnic languages, we don't have a word for certain terms. I mean, it just tells you how the people think of a family. Our families are very... Um, th- they're not. They're not uh, nuclear. Okay. Right. They're multi generational. Okay. And the people are living on compounds. My dad has this story. He tells of one of my favorite uncles who died. Who technically, if I were to use the formal designation, he's probably my cousin okay. because he's my dad's first cousin. But, but, he's but so much older. they grew up as brothers. And my dad tells the story of going to school and finally realizing that they're not technically brothers okay but you know the the homes were so close the compounds were so close and that's how they grew up going from home to home because my uncle's mom and my dad's father were siblings okay I got it so uh, there's just that element I remember being in Milwaukee with one of my uncles at a fair and um, one of the people that I was buying from he was a Gambian seller and he asked me if that was my dad and I said well he's my uncle and he said what do you mean? We don't have that. That's your father, right? So it's just the way the culture just looks at things. Mindset. Yeah. And then in my family, there are a lot of people who we would call cousins who really weren't cousins. They were family friends. Now, that okay. aspect is more similar yeah, to that's what you Yeah, more similar describe. to what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah that's okay. more similar to what you described. But because that you exists. grew up with them. Yeah. You considered
0: them almost like family. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So you grow up on the – you grow up – how long are you on the – I don't want to call it a compound, but that's kind of what you said. <laughs> Not a you at the university? On the university?
1: Yeah. Uh, the on the uni- campus. Yeah, campus. <laughs> yeah, I didn't grow up on a compound. I grew up <laughs> on a university campus. Um, let's see. I was there. We moved there when I was four. Okay. I left there when I was 21. Oh, so your whole life. Yeah. Okay.
0: And your parents worked at the university the whole time?
1: Yeah. What did they do? My dad's a professor.
0: Okay. That's why I was getting all the degrees. Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah. Psychology, education, and my mom is a university administrator.
0: So how do you end up here? Girl. Well, what? Where, where are your parents right now?
1: <laughs> my parents are still in Nigeria. Okay. And my two youngest sisters are in Nigeria.
0: So how do you And end then up I have here? one
1: sister in Phoenix. Okay. And she was born in Iowa. What? Yeah, we were all born in different countries. We all have different passports. Is she older than you? No, I'm the oldest. So did they go to Canada down to Iowa? They were in the United States. Okay, you started asking me about how my parents met. My dad okay. has a brother. Okay. Quote unquote. And... My mom had known him since they were younger. They used to go to a Methodist camp together. Okay. So my dad is visiting um, his brother. My mom is visiting her best friend who has married Where they in D.C. Her? Okay. So oh, my Washington mom's D.C. My mom's going to school in Indianapolis. My dad's going to school in Iowa. He's visiting his brother. She's visiting her best friend who's married to my uncle, and they meet.
0: Oh, wow. So that's how they met. Okay, I'm going to ask a really dumb question. I'm sorry if this seems dumb. Are there such things as arranged marriages in Nigeria?
1: Uh, I'm sure there are in, okay. in certain portions of the country.
0: But not where you grew up. Everybody organically met like your parents did.
1: Well, my parents organically met, yeah. yeah. I, I know they're, they're families where people still arrange marriages, but they're not as common. But not as common. No. They're okay. not as common.
0: I've never had a passport, so some of my questions are <laughs> seriously. I'm trying, I'm trying. Okay, so they organically meet, yep. and right away they fall in love, or...?
1: I don't know if I don't know. I've never asked them. You that never question. asked them, but I know they dated for a long time. They dated for like four years. Oh wow, long distance. Yeah, because yeah. they were in different cities. Yeah, and my dad used to drive to Indianapolis all the time to go visit my mom. How long was the drive? That I don't long. even know. From Iowa. I don't know. Wow, you've never asked him? You're gonna go call him and ask him? Ask him how long the drive is? No, I I can probably (laughs) just, I'll ask Google Maps (laughs) (laughs) and that can probably tell me. No, he loves driving. Um, Well, actually he's had to slow down now that he's older, but he loved driving and loves driving. And one of the things he always bragged about was that he visited all the 48 contiguous states in the United States when he was here, which is more than I've done and I've lived here longer. Are you
0: gonna take him to Hawaii and Alaska?
1: I would love to. Yeah. Well, not Alaska, but Hawaii. (laughs) 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 I definitely want to go to Hawaii. Time of year, Alaska's
0: really nice. Not like during winter.
1: I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a wilderness person.
0: Um. Okay. So, 21 is that when you leave for school?
1: That's when I come here. I actually started university in Nigeria. Okay. At the university, my parents worked at electrical engineering major. Oh
0: wow! What did you think you were gonna be?
1: I was planning on being an aeronautical engineer. Oh wow! Yeah. But they wouldn't let me come to the United States. So I started with electrical engineering, thinking I'd transfer at some point. Your parents wouldn't let you come? Yeah, they wouldn't let me Why come. did you want
0: to come to the United States?
1: I just always thought that we would come because they were educated here. Uh-huh. And the way they talked, they always talked about us coming here. Okay. And perhaps because I was born in Canada and my sister was born in the United States, it just was always, you're going to go back. Yeah. Um, so I never thought I would go to university in Nigeria. Um, when I was in the 10th grade, I took the ACT as a practice. Um, I didn't like how my father was treated. It was one of my first experiences with, with racism because it was an American school. Okay. So some of the staff there were American and I just thought, I had an experience that I that, that was really hurtful. And so my dad said, this is just a practice test. And I walked out and I said, I'm not doing it again. Whatever my scores are, my scores are. Yeah, I'm not going back there again. And I applied to universities and I got accepted to a bunch and I got some offers. But I was in 10th grade. Yeah. So I graduated. That's young to
0: take that anyways, right?
1: Yeah, I was in the equivalent of 10th grade, but again, it was supposed to be a practice. Yeah. Right, because I wasn't here in the United States. My dad wanted me to see what their exams were like as opposed to what ours were like. Um, And for me to just have that practice um, and to have a second one, because he was like, you know, in America the kids do these practice exams and so let's, Let's do this. So we had so to went actually to a travel. Different school. Okay. We had to travel to another state.
0: To another state. Yeah. And it was to an where the American, American school, school was. But over there. But over there. And what do you mean? You remember being like, I don't like how they treated my dad.
1: They were very disrespectful to my dad when we were standing in line to get in, the way they were talking to him, um, and I saw that and I felt that. And when I was in the exam, I remember. I got done with my math section early and I put my pencil down and I raised my head and I looked up and woman of a woman came up to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm done. Like she was acting as if I was trying to look around to copy someone's yeah. paper. And I was like, I was, I'm done. And she was genuinely surprised that I was done. And it's it's so interesting yeah. sometimes when people have experiences. A lot of times people try to tell you, oh, but maybe it was something else. We know when someone thinks yeah. we're not good enough.
0: My question is, since it was an American school, what did it look
1: like? Did um, it look different than the university? There were a lot it? of American. So it's a, school, it's a school where a lot of American expatriates okay. and European expatriates would send their children to go to school. Okay. Um, So it was that kind of environment, and it was very diverse. There were African kids who were trying to go to the United States, and there were children there who were, um, their parents were American or European or from some Western country. So it was a mix of people in the room.
0: And you were in 10th grade, and you still remember that? I do. Wow, okay, so. But I also
1: remember things that happened when I was four. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. My husband does not like that, but (laughs) I remember everything.
0: (laughs) So, you lived there till you're 21. How do you end up here?
1: Um, I applied to those schools when I was in tenth grade. Nothing happened because my dad. Because you're in the tenth grade, huh?
0: Because you were in the tenth grade.
1: Well, no, actually. I want to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, they let my sister come to the United States when she was in the ninth or tenth grade. She can came.
0: Have... That's such a different mindset. Yeah, than she came when, when she was 15, here, right?
1: Yeah, it's I very can't different.
0: Imagine sending my kids across the world, can you? Maybe since you did it, you can, but.
1: I can, I mean, Kansas I can and I can't. Yeah. You know, I'm so protective of my children. I don't know how they did it. I can now see that it must have caused them a lot of pain and anguish. And for our, our first decade here, my sister and I were so protective of what we shared with them because we didn't want them to worry yeah. for that exact reason. They're so far away, they can't control anything. We don't want to tell them what we're going through or what we're struggling with. Yeah. But I also know, you know, when I even look at the migrants crossing and people fleeing, people getting in, in boats and going into the ocean and drowning, that depending on your circumstances, you know, they come from a generation where you do what you can so that your children can have a better life. Well, okay. So- and they were sending us here because they thought we would have a better life.
0: How long ago was this?
1: Hmm. My sister came in, well, I came in 93. Okay. And so she came the year before me.
0: So we're talking different years when it comes to immigration, right? Um, different in what way? Tell me more. Different than 2019, right? Yeah. Where? The hostility is more open. Up. Yeah, the hostility is more open. But so I guess, so for my very, very um, non-educated View on immigration because I've never even had a passport. <laughs> Went to Canada once in a car before you need a passport, but that was it. Um, what did that look like in 93 when you came over?
1: Um, I'll say this. Within a few months of being here, I felt that immigrants weren't really welcome, and the system was set up to make it as difficult as possible for us to navigate. Um,
0: did you come straight for school? Were you on a school visa?
1: No, I actually came on a visitor's visa. Okay. Because I didn't know any better. Okay. So when I was growing up, my parents always said that as a Canadian citizen, I don't need a visa mm-hmm. to to live in America. And we believed that when we bought my ticket. What we didn't realize was, you know, the process that other people have to go through where they go to the consulate and they wait in line to get a visa. I didn't have to do that. I could get a visa at the airport, but I still needed a visa. And I didn't understand that. So I arrive at O'Hare and even when I stopped over in in Europe, they were asking me all these questions, well, why are you going? What's the purpose of you going? And I said, "Well, to visit and to, you know, go to school, but I don't have, you know, I haven't decided where I'm going to go." So they stamped me an F1 visa. And I kept saying I don't need a visa until someone looked at my passport and said, no, you do. Everybody needs a visa. And this is an F-1 visa, which means you're a visitor. And I just followed up with the different uh, places that I had applied to when I was younger and said, do I still have this acceptance from... So
0: you just went to the colleges?
1: No, I wrote them. Oh, you wrote go- them. This I wrote is before them. you went. Okay, sorry. Do I still have these you know, scholarships or admissions? And yes, and I did the comparison of how much things will cost. Um, looked at other universities that I hadn't. And even universities that were cheaper, for example, Iowa State would have been cheaper, but I wouldn't have had as many scholarships. Yeah. So I had to kind of figure out what was the best thing to do and what I could afford. And I only had, had $1,500 in the equivalent of bonds that my mom had bought when I was a kid. Oh, And money people donated to me when I was leaving, so that's a thing we do when people are leaving, you give them money and you wish them well. So I had this collection of uh, bonds and uh, British pounds and American dollars. Oh, wow. And I had had $1,500, that's it so
0: you know what i just saw for the first time the other day because we don't have these around kansas when i went to new york i saw one of the stores where you change in your money yeah and they were all over right but the first one i saw i was like and my girlfriend who's totally worldly right i was like what and she's like people come here with all different types of yeah. money they have to change it to american you money have to change it over. we don't see that in kansas City. i'm sure they're
1: here but they're yeah. not walk yeah. by well you can here. do it in a bank
0: a bank will do okay, it. okay you, you can do it at a bank yeah a bank but i just i found that very like that was such a big big thing to me because I had never really seen that. So that's probably kind of something that you had to figure out how she got over here.
1: Had to figure it out. Where'd you end up going? I ended up going to Westmore University because they offered me the best scholarship deal. Where's that at? It was, it's now closed. Imagine that. It was in Lamars, Iowa. It used to be a United Methodist church school.
0: Why did you apply there? Because it was in Iowa?
1: Because my dad went there.
0: That's where your dad went. Okay, that's it.
1: And my uncle went there.
0: Oh, wow. How did they find
1: it? (laughs) They're Methodist.
0: Okay, that's why. <laughs> they were looking for Methodists. Yeah, there was this
1: pipeline from uh, of Methodist kids from all over the world that went there. Okay. Um, and my one of my grandpas got an honorary degree from there, so I ended oh, wow. up getting the best scholarship deal there. And I went there thinking I was going to transfer because it's a liberal arts school. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'll go there. I'll take, you know, the math, physics, chemistry classes that I need for um, – my pre-engineering, and then I'll transfer. And of course, I never transferred.
0: <laughs> Wait, how does a girl from Nigeria, you end up in Iowa? Talk about a culture change.
1: Not a, just a culture change, but I'm telling you, the weather, though.
0: <laughs> the weather is rough. I dated uh, a boy from Iowa, and he liked to go to the football games, and let it me was But nor- from me. Yes. Kansas, I can't imagine Nigeria. No,
1: northwest Iowa is brutal. It is flat. That wind chill will kill you. I say that, even though people live there, I'm like, why did I come here? I could have gone to Honduras. Yeah, <laughs> oh! or Phoenix. Right? Or oh, <laughs> Phoenix, yeah, that's what she did. She <laughs> she fled to Phoenix, but yeah.
0: Is that where you went to law school?
1: In Iowa? Uh-huh. I went to, yeah, I moved to Omaha for a little while, and then I decided to go to law school. Um, I got the best scholarship deal from Drake and Creighton. Oh. Um, I really wanted to go to California, but I didn't get a full ride at any of the schools there. Um, I got a, I got a, what did I get at Pepperdine? I got a full ride from, I think, the public policy. I was going to do a joint degree, Masters of Public Policy and a JD, but I only got like a half ride or something like that on, the law school, and it was so expensive out there. So there again, money dictated what I would do, right? Because I was so ready to flee the Midwest and go somewhere warm.
0: (laughs) You're moving to Chicago.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But you know, (laughs) no, I'm moving to Chicago, exactly. Uh, All for a boy. (laughs) But I ended up picking Drake because they had an excellent clinical program. And their thing that they talked about, yeah, their thing that they talked about was they graduate trial lawyers, you know, and I knew I wanted to do that.
0: At what point did you decide you want to become a lawyer and not an engineer?
1: Hoy, so um, I started thinking about it before I graduated college. Okay. I decided on it in between college and law school. While I was in college, I, my first semester, I was a teaching assistant, research assistant for a professor He was a professor of history and we would get into these deep conversations about international relations and politics and you know and he just thought you know he thought wow for a young kid you're pretty mature and you know a lot and so he started working on me trying to convince me to get a political science degree i was like dude they didn't send me to america <laughs> to study political science what am i going to do with a political what did science he degree look like? he was waved that's what i was going um he was insanely smart. He is. He's still alive. He was kind. He was gentle. I, I can't tell you what he looks like. I'm poor at describing people. But he people. was an
0: older white gentleman.
1: Yeah. Okay. Middle, I mean, younger than my dad. Definitely younger than my dad. Yeah.
0: But he took a genuine interest and really invested in you. He did.
1: And a lot of my professors at that school actually were like that. I really? mean, there were a number of them that I can say had that for me, pushed me, pushed me in many ways. Um, but he just decided I was great and he started working on me to do this major and I was like, no. I cannot be employed with a political science major and I tried to explain to him, listen, when they send us here, they send us to be doctors or engineers. Not lawyers? No, I mean, maybe a lawyer if you can't do the doctor and engineer stuff. Really? <laughs> oh, a lot of immigrant families from Africa like that.
0: Is it because, is lawyer not the same level? There, because here I see that as the same level.
1: I don't know if it's seen as the the same level. I think think job security is big.
0: Can a law degree transfer cuts? Like, could you use a law degree the same way here that in Nigeria, like you could a medical degree?
1: Yes and no. With both of those, you have licensing requirements that you have to go through and adjust to. The American legal system is different. The legal system in Sierra Leone and in Nigeria is based off of common law. It's based off of the British system. Okay. So you graduate and you, are, you choose between being a solicitor or a barrister. Okay. So it's very different than what we do here in the United States, where essentially we're doing both. Okay. Right? So the solicitor. Here you can
0: take the cases you want.
1: Yeah. But there, the for example, a solicitor will do um, pleadings and stuff. Okay. The barrister will be doing the arguing in court. What do trial. you like doing? I actually like both, but I'm a trial geek. Yeah, I like being in trial. What's your favorite? Oh, I like being movie? in trial. I don't know if I have one.
0: What do you think about Legally Blonde? <laughs> do you hate that as a lawyer that movie?
1: <laughs> so, I've tried to give that movie a chance because one of my best friends loves it, and I've grown to be okay with it, but in it's like the beginning I hated movie. it. girl power movie. It is, but it's so damn pink. <laughs> Like my office. It's, 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 it's pink and it's fluffy and it's, <laughs> and it's nothing like law school. And she brings her dog everywhere she goes. And I'm just like, oh, my God. God. I have a lot of
0: uh, lawyer friends that hate that
1: movie. Do they really? Yeah. Well, my friend who loves it loves pink as well. And, of course, I've now grown to love pink. I actually wear pink. And it's ironic because, you know, 10 years ago I probably wouldn't. Yeah. But we change.
0: We evolve. You're in purple today.
1: I'm in purple. Look at you. I love color. So
0: I have a question. And we're probably going to skip a little stuff here so we can head back. But so you like, I'm going to guess just based off of my little bit of time with you, that you're probably a good trial attorney, right? You think through your words. I can see your mind. You stop. You do what I don't do. And you stop, you think, and then you say something amazing. Um, So you think through your words. You're smart as heck. What does it look like when you go work at a law firm and then? Okay, let me say this correctly. I'm trying to think through my words. like you. Trying to respond to you. You work through a, for a law firm, right? And I imagine in this law firm that there's not a ton of people that look like you.
1: Uh, this is generally true.
0: Right. Yeah. How do you become the director of strategic diversity? Is that something you feel that it is a responsibility because of your background that you want to take on? Or is that something that they ask you to take on because of who you are? And either way, how does that set you apart from all the lawyers that come and look kind of alike and they just get to be the trial lawyers?
1: Hmm. I don't know if it sets me apart. I think. I believe fundamentally that we each have things that we're extremely good at. I do believe in things like purpose and calling um, and passion, even though maybe I have a difference of view than some on how we find that passion. I think what makes lawyers good at what we do is when we're able to bring all of our experiences, all our talents, all our insights to the table, because not no two of us are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are gifted in different things. There's some people who are gifted brief writers. There's some people who are gifted orators. Um, there's some freaky people who are great at everything. <laughs> um, there's some of us who are great at managing people, and the majority of us really suck at managing people. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I think we have to think of everyone as bringing something unique and valuable to the table which of course I would say since I'm passionate about diversity and belonging and inclusion, but I do generally believe that. And I've always believed that my heritage and my experience offers me a perspective. And because I don't necessarily steal my voice, I've always offered that, whether it was in college or wherever. So, I mean, in college, within my first semester, I, I ran for Student Senate because I was asked to because I was vocal about things, and if I saw something that I thought could be improved, I would say something. I started a multicultural students' association because there wasn't one. Um, It actually started as an international students' association, but we converted it into just multicultural students' association. And within a year, I was given talks on campus and outside campus. Now we call it diversity and inclusion. Then they called it multiculturalism. Some of the things that I talked about was how people can successfully navigate differences across cultures to build relationships and to have healthy dialogue. Well, now we call that cultural competency. This was 25 years yeah. ago. And so I've always sort of had that approach that when I'm in the room, there are times that I have nothing to offer. But if I think that I have something to offer, I'm going to offer it. And that's how I navigated my, my legal career. Um, so perhaps that sets me apart because I think our profession is one that pushes conformity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the diversity dilemma, right? We push conformity, we invite diversity into the room and then we say, now be exactly like us. Yeah. So to the extent that I've consistently worked on trying to be authentic, I think it's a practice. We're not always successful at it. Sometimes we fail, sometimes we fall. But if we're intentional about connecting to our values, um, I think that sets you apart. I think that sets you apart. Now, to answer your question on the job, I got to a place in my career where I was desiring something different. I'd made a list of things I wanted to do. I had done all of those things. I had done it well. There were parts of being a practicing lawyer that I didn't like. There were parts of being a partner that I didn't like. And I started doing an inventory of what I'm good at, what my skills are, what my experiences are, what are the intersections, what are the things that I can do and lose track of time. Uh, when I interact with people, what are the things that I'm doing a lot of? And I realized, wow, I'm really passionate about coaching women and minorities to navigate towards success and bridging differences. And I went to a workshop, sat down, and distilled down to core values. And it came down to using my strengths and experiences and talents and gifts and education to help people and communities bridge differences, to empower and equip minorities and women to succeed, and to be an advocate for people whose voices have been muted. And that was a release for me, because I thought, gosh, if I stop practicing law, I'm gonna hate it. But when I realized that what drives me is being an advocate, and I don't have to be in a courtroom to be an advocate, it gave me some freedom to start looking at other things. And I started brainstorming things. Well, what if I opened up a law firm that was kind of like the Southern Poverty Law Center? And I litigated cases, but we also did some education and training. Or what if I created something like the International Justice Mission, where they're training lawyers to go out in these countries and do human trafficking work and help lawyers there build their justice systems to protect people and when the job opened up at my firm, I thought, wow, this is interesting here. I am thinking of building something from the ground up. And there you were are actually at the firm. Yeah. yeah. And there, no, I wasn't at Shookland.
0: Oh, you weren't when it no. opened up and then you started looking for jobs. Right.
1: Okay. Right. And when this job came open, you I must thought have it. That's not a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, when the if job opened up, you have a
0: LinkedIn. <laughs> know.
1: I know. When the when the job opened up at my last firm, I just thought, wait, a law firm would pay me? To do this, rather than me going and creating a business or a consultancy, um, which I didn't really want to do because I'm not really an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I was pregnant with my second kid. I'm like, well, let's give this a try. And I've loved it. And I've just. And you're just not there because you're moving. What?
0: And you're just moving. And now so I'm moving. Yeah. So yeah. Now yeah.
1: you got to find a new I Chicago listener.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have a. Weird question. I keep prefacing all of this for you. You're very intimidating. I, I mean, you're what? like great, but intimidating. You're very, very, like, I'm honored to be sitting here with you,
1: but. I am like the l- most least, this is bad English, the least intimidating five you're just like, foot three woman. <laughs> well, i am only five meet. two, so you got me.
0: <laughs> um, here's the thing I have three friends now from Nigeria. Yeah. Huh. You, my friend Gigi, and my friend Tope. Okay. All three of you are very similar, Hmm. as in that you guys own who you are.
1: Hmm.
0: Is that a Nigerian thing? Or is that just happens to be the only people I know from Nigeria are those? Hmm. Let me explain to you what Gigi and Tope do. They're very successful as well. Gigi is getting her PhD. She's now in Italy. I worked with an agency here. Uh, She's also running a very, very big fashion online magazine that she created. Okay. Tope is the founder of Calendly, the software Mm. that everybody uses to schedule their sales meetings. How cool. Right? And you. You're very successful. Uh, Is this a Nigerian thing? Is this a cultural thing? Or do I just happen to know the most best, just speaking about English, Nigerians (laughs) that have ever come through Kansas City?
1: (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I I think it's maybe the latter. I think in every culture, there are people who own and people who don't. I think Nigerians can sometimes have a reputation of being arrogant and cocky. But that that leads to success sometimes. That leads to success sometimes. Um, I think... I think how people are raised individually in their families has a lot to do with things. I grew up in a culture where children were not supposed to be heard. Yeah. And my parents taught us to speak up okay. and even speak up to older people respectfully if we were wronged and to tell them. Um, I was a feminist at seven because I just, all 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 the cultural rules about what girls could do and boys could do, even at that young age, just struck, struck me as... Rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, mm, no. Okay. And my parents didn't tamp that down. They let it be. And they encouraged it. And I found out later when I was much older, when someone met me, they, you know, your dad gave a keynote at our school. And he referenced how you write in all your books that uh-huh. what girls can do, boys can do. I what boys that. can do, girls can do better. And I didn't even know he was doing that. So I think the family that raises you has a lot to do with it. Because when you get in difficult situations, which... I think twenty-five years in the United States, you know, a lifetime of sexism, twenty-five years of racism, um, all the other stuff, you know, the accent that you cover, which I do cover my accent because I've been doing that since I was four. Um, when I moved to Nigeria, the kids made fun of me because I sounded American, but I was black, and it was confusing. Yeah. So I've been covering my accent for a long time, <laughs> but I think some of those tools that they give us at home can help. I also think that identity is a very powerful thing. Feeling like you have a place that you belong to and that you're proud of is very helpful. You know, my dad always used to say this thing that used to drive me nuts. He was like, well, it didn't drive me nuts. I I, I just thought it was funny. And he would say, even if I came out from under a rock, I still have that rock to go back to. And his point was, I'm from somewhere. There's just a limited amount of bullshit I'm going to take from people. Yeah. Um, I have my values. Uh, Nigeria is an environment where a lot of things get done by who you know and who you're connected to and whose Very butt you were on. willing to ki- kiss. And he was just like, nope, not doing it. And I can't remember how many times I've been in the United States where I've faced difficulty and I've thought, I come from somewhere and even if I have nothing else, I come from somewhere that is I it belong to, here? is what harder here?
0: Is it harder, like you said, you went to Nigeria and you felt like you had to cover up your almost American accent? Mm-hmm. Do you feel it's harder in the United States that you deal with more
1: criticism of who you just are at your at your core? Um, I think it's just different. I'm not sure that I would say it's harder. I think it's different. Um, West African culture generally can be very shame driven. Okay, we have a lot of rules. OK, Okay. about how you should dress when you're a certain age, how you should dress when you're married, what's proper for a woman to do, what's not proper. I mean, so to the extent that you're the kind of person who is focused on authenticity and you were a child like me who was constantly saying that rule doesn't make sense and that's stupid, um, that can be a little hard. Yeah. Right. Because you know that you're constantly questioning the paradigm.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but in the United States, some of the the barriers that people face are very systemic and structural. And so it's not just about you being your best and doing your best work. It's a lot harder than that. And a lot of the things that you navigate here are things that are designed in many ways to make you feel smaller. right? Yeah. Sexism and racism make you feel smaller. Unconsciously. When girls start thinking at a certain age that they can no longer do math or they can't be as good as boys in science, that's a huge impact, right? Um, When women are not able to negotiate for themselves because for a lifetime we've been taught not to, that's hard. So I would say it's different. There are different obstacles. Um, One of the things that drew me to the United States and why I really wanted to come here was I envisioned the United States as a place where my success would not be tied to who I knew, what well, family I was born to, and how much wealth my family had because my family wasn't wealthy. And my dad didn't believe in seeking favors for his kids. Yeah. <laughs> he made that yep. very clear. He's like, I'm never going to beg someone to get you a college admission, so yeah. you better do this on your own. Um, so it's just, it's just different, it's different. Where's your husband from? Iowa. He's Iowa <laughs> I didn't need a boy from Iowa
0: one time. I didn't follow him as much as <laughs> you do. Uh, is he black? No, he's a white boy. Is he a white boy? You married a white boy I after all that? I married a white boy. Uh-huh? I, I got a white boy from Iowa. A white that boy from right? Iowa.
1: <laughs> yes. I like ma'am. that. Okay,
0: so that leads me to my next question: What's it like raising mixed children? You say mm. your your accent wasn't too much, and I have a lot of a lot of mixed friends, and a lot of them it's it's a lot of the same same. A lot of them have the same rhetoric around. I'm always too black or I'm always too white.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's I never feel like I'm enough a mm-hmm. lot of times. What's that like raising children?
1: I think the most important thing that we can do in terms of raising children, regardless of their color, is practicing authenticity, practicing them loving themselves and feeling as if they are worthy of love and belonging just as they are. Um, raising biracial children... I think some of the hurdles that I personally face is number one, I didn't grow up here, Mm -hmm. right? So the experiences of growing up in a country that has myths and stereotypes of people of color from the beginning, as opposed to coming here at 21 and thinking, gosh, that's stupid, Yeah, um, I think there's a difference. Another difference is I'm black. They are technically biracial, they may choose, call themselves black and by the time they're older who in the hell knows what the debates will be about who is allowed to call themselves black Everybody's and who isn't start to look the same i think right yeah get,
0: well eventually one day <laughs> yeah but you know, but, you know people
1: get caught up in that like yeah. if you're biracial are you allowed to call yourself black and you know um you're not being sensitive to the to the darker skinned people and then other people get mad if you're biracial and you don't call yourself black because they think that you think you're better you know, they'll, they'll figure that out for themselves and we will yeah. be there to help guide them. But we have honest conversations about things. We have honest conversations about what they see on what TV. What about your husband though? So he doesn't know what it's like to grow up any sort of black.
0: No. How does he navigate that?
1: He's constantly learning, yeah. just like I'm constantly learning. I can say that when we first started dating, there were things that he wasn't aware of and didn't pay attention to that he is now. I'll give you one quick example that I share with people. When we first started dating in small town Iowa, when him and his friends would want to take us to a bar, I would say, is it safe? And he would say, yeah, it's safe. And I would say, is it safe for me? He had to start learning to think differently, Mm -hmm. that there were spaces he could navigate that may be safe for him, but it may not be safe for me. And um, we had an incident with one of his friends who didn't listen. Um, A friend was flying in and it was 30 minutes away and he was going to pick her up. And I said, please don't stop at any of those country bars on your way back. No, I won't, I won't. I said, please don't. Oh, I know what I'm doing. It's safe around here. I'm like, no. And he stopped and they had an issue. Somebody thought she was his girlfriend. He got called, you know, a nigga lover. They had to leave because he was about to get in a fight. And I was really upset about it because I said, you have to start thinking differently. He wouldn't understand why I would scan a room. And I do it unconsciously now, as most black people do. We scan and I'm accustomed to being the only one in many, many rooms for many, many years of my life. And even now in many leadership rooms, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I am the only one sometimes. But he's learned to scan. He scans. Yeah. He scans to see who's there and he scans to see what kind of environment there is. Um, I remember him sending me some things about Serena Williams. He was so upset about the racism that she's facing. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who sent it to me. I was like, huh. You know, and so I think it's a growing process if people are willing to lean in. Yeah. Will he ever know what it is to be black? No. Now here's the interesting thing. My husband looks like he's got something in him, quote unquote. Okay. So people are always saying, uh, he can't be white. He's gotta have something in him Yeah. Um, because he's a little darker.
0: I get that a little bit when I, like during the summer when mm-hmm. I get real tan, mm-hmm. I get that a little bit too. Yeah. And it's like, and people wanna question you. Yeah, it's and in weird, the summer right? he gets a lot
1: darker. Yeah. So he's faced jokes as a kid that people have made but it's not quite the same. Yeah. And he knows that, and he knows that he has a privilege. And I learned from him yeah. as well, because after being in this country for this long, there are ways that you start holding back. You're more risk averse to certain things. And let me tell you, when I talk to him about stuff that's going on, and he says, no, 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 no. You need to say this and this and this. I'm like, oh, everybody needs a white man in their corner. <laughs> <laughs> you need someone who is accustomed to walk into a room and feeling like they belong, yeah. giving you some hints on negotiation, on asking for a promotion, on any of those other things that the world has given us counter messages on. And we have to be wise in saying, well, you know, you can probably do that, but I may not be able to do it in that way. Yeah. I may have to do it in a different way. Like Joan Williams talks about gender Jiu mm-hmm. where you're doing something that the men do, but you do it in a way that's acceptable. So you don't get penalized, but yeah. it's, I learned that. It's a I learned those process.
0: negotiation lessons actually from my friend Tope, who is from Nigeria, yeah. who just couldn't believe that I wouldn't ask for more money because I was worth it, oh. and dared me to on uh, one of my final jobs before I started yeah. this business. And I remember calling him, going, "All right, you were right," and he's like, "The worst they could say was no." Yeah, the and worst they so, could <laughs> say is no.
1: So your friend is his name T O P E. It's Babatope. Babatope.
0: That's probably how you say it. I've always called him Tope.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He moved
0: here when he was three. His mother's a professor as well. So a lot of very lives in Atlanta. Moved to Kansas City for a job Mm. years ago, but he's wonderful. So if you ever get to Atlanta I'll introduce you guys. I'd love that. Although it's covering the world now. Him and his new, he's got a new girlfriend, and they're going on all sorts of vacations. That's awesome. That's a life. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's a life. All right. What is your last, give us, our listeners, last piece of advice. What is your mm. best piece of business advice in living authentically while you're navigating, co- coming up in your business and growing in your
1: business and reaching the top level? Hmm. I, I, I don't know what the best advice would be, but I would say... Keep getting up. Yeah. You're gonna mess up some things. You're going to um, not be honest with yourself. You're going to have full pause. You're gonna mess up a big project. You just keep going. You get up, you learn from it. I mean, don't keep doing the same shit over and over. (laughs) Learn from it. Yeah, (laughs) learn from it and then keep going. But it's okay to fall down and it's okay to have slow moments. You know, it's it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that we don't talk enough about. Um, it's okay to not be okay. okay. It's op- okay to be unhappy. I think in our culture here in the United States, we don't like that. We want everything to be perfect all the time, and that's not how life works. Zero percent. Yeah. It's okay to be not okay. It's okay to be not be okay. And, and just keep just keep going. Do your best work every time with what you have, where you are, and just keep going. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you for having me.
0: That is is it for this week's Cocktail Hour. Do you want to hear from your favorite local businesswoman? Do you know a woman in business who is shaking shit up? Send your recommendations to Girl at cocktailhourpodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe and share our podcast with your friends. We share our stories to motivate and inspire you. So spread the love around. Until next time, I'm Erin Folk. Keep your class and your glass raised, and we'll see you at the next cocktail hour.
1: Thanks, (laughs) Gory. Thank you. I appreciate it.